0: Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
1: Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go. Every day giftable. Every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. And they're satisfying to scratch, no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used
2: to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, pilot, passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone.
3: Hi, folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Really interesting topic on the history of the NFL and some inflection points in rules changes and run-pass balance. Joining me today for that discussion is, is the author of a great article. We're going to point you to. Hey,
2: Ken, it's good to ha- good to be on with you. I appreciate you finding the article first of all, then having me on the show.
3: Well, you said you wrote this seven years ago. It's still very pertinent in terms of, of how the game has changed and really catching some of these inflection points. So I happen to catch it through somebody else mentioning that running backs in the 1970s and what sometimes is referred to as the dead ball era for the NFL. It's kind of interesting that you know, football has such a thing. Um, and it was in the 70s, which I wouldn't have guessed, uh, had six consecutive years where running backs led the National Football League in receptions. And three of those were Baltimore Colts players: Lydell Mitchell twice and Joe.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting when you go back in the history of the NFL. I, it's funny because I I'll tell you the origin of this article. Seven years ago, I was I was trying to figure out how to get back into writing a little bit, and I just started my own uh, I started my own portfolio site, and I was interested in applying. Now, I was in high school. I was a math geek like I took 2 years of calculus in high school and and of course put that to work in, in a journalism career and uh and and I and I was like all right well you know what am i interested in i'm interested in sort of statistical analysis and I and I, and I got into a fight with a buddy of mine who uh Eric Lopez is his name and he uh, no, no, no. This is uh, Eric Lopez ELO. He's we we joke that he's the woge of college softball. So if you ever get, get a chance to follow him Eric Lopez ELO on Twitter, if you're a college softball fan. But anyway, um, he and I had an argument about when the NFL was more entertaining, and he argued it was back when the era of defense and running and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's not true. Like the the best years of the NFL in terms of TV ratings are have been since the past since the passing game has really taken off. And you know, I saw a couple. Things there was a, another thing on NFL films I saw about um, I don't know if you saw it, but if you see it on YouTube, it's really cool. It was about the actual football. And I think Boomer Esiason helped out on it and it was, uh, and, and he like showed like how to throw different footballs from different eras of the NFL and how, yeah, it was, it, if you get the chance to see it on YouTube, it's really cool. I'll send you the link so that everyone can see it. And like the old footballs were basically impossible to throw. They were like, I mean, if you, Boomer is holding, he's like, I can't throw this thing. It's like, yeah, it's like throwing It's like throwing a, an oblong medicine ball. <laughs> And and it, it progressed to the shape of the, the Duke football that we know and love today, and so I was like, all right, well I you know I have Pro Football Reference here. I'm just curious, like how has the passing game really evolved over time? So I just grabbed the the data from Pro Football Reference, and they have a table that you could, that I actually linked to in the piece um, that uh, where it shows you the average offensive. Production uh, of you know every team, every team put together for every season, and it showed average you know rushing yards and average passing yards per game per team. So I just threw that into a graph, and some really interesting information came out of it, and. It, 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 you were talking about the period of time in the '70s when uh, when six players who were running backs actually led the NFL in in receptions. This was at a time when it, the it, it, there are kind of two eras in the NFL where the past kind of overtook the run obviously you could you could start out in the 1930s the data goes back to 1932 and initially it was basically all running there was not a lot of passing in fact initially teams averaged a little barely over 50 passing yards a game starting out and then it started picked up a little bit 1939 was the first season on record that we know of where teams averaged more passing yards per game than rushing yards per game all right. And then, mm-hmm. yeah.
3: A lot of people would be surprised it was that long ago. But then a lot of other people who know the 30s know that the, the Packers, for example, with Don Hudson, were way ahead of the game in terms of mm-hmm. uh, going to a pass-first offense, or not a pass-first offense, but, but a lot more passing. Right.
2: Yeah, but yeah, more pass, and you ha- you also had guys like you know um, uh, you know Sammy Baugh was part of that with the with the wa- with the Washington, um, and then it, there's sort of a, a steady climb in overall offensive production until about ni- in the mid 50s, and in the in uh, the in 1956 was actually the year that the NFL had the highest average rushing yards per game on record for each team is 155 rushing yards per game Mm -hmm. per team on average in a game and passing kind of dipped toward the end of the, uh, toward the middle, late fifties, which is kind of surprising because that's when, you know, you had Paul Brown and the Cleveland Browns and Otto Graham coming around. But, you know, they also had, obviously, as we know, with Jim Brown, a pretty potent rushing attack. Then you get to the early sixties and what I, and I obviously I have no hard information to, 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 to really verify this, but when you get to the 60s, 60s, there opens up a gap between passing and rushing. Rushing goes down, passing goes up. And I think the reason behind that was the AFL. Now, the stats I put together were only from the NFL, but I think what the coaches and the owners knew at the time is that the AFL was presenting a much more uh, exciting brand of football that was gaining market share on the NFL. And they were passing the ball out. they said, you know, what, we got to loosen up the rules a little bit on passing here and 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 have a little bit more uh, and, and open up the game a little bit more. That worked until the until the merger. And then when the merger happened in the late 60s, the again, passing went down, rushing went up. And, I, and there are a couple of factors for that. First of all, you had three AF, or NFL teams move to the AFL and what became the AFC. All right, and then you also had a, a, a once the the AFL was essentially Absorbed into the NFL The NFL kind of obviously felt That you know they were the they were the big boys In town and kind of threw their weight around and said You know all this all this namby pamby passing Stuff is not for us we're going to play football Like real men you know what I mean So
3: uh, That might have caused that
2: Well no specific Rule changes in particular in that part But when we get to the actual legislation Of the game starts in the late 70s So um, To put things into perspective nine. 1977 was the last year of kind of what we call the dead ball era. And it was the and it was it was the last season on record where rushing outpaced passing. All right. So in 77, uh, I believe the Cowboys won the Super Bowl that year. Um and it was uh, it was, uh about 144 rushing yards per game, 142 passing yards per game per team. Now that's when the that's when the competition committee um which, you know, at the time, Don Shula actually was on the top competition committee. And and I'm sure you remember for a a long time, he was on that committee and did a lot to advance the game, uh, and make it a more fan friendly, um, a more fan friendly experience. So in 78, there were three major rules that were rule changes that were passed. The first one that we know pretty well is what we call the Mel Blunt rule. Which is the illegal contact foul? You can't t-
3: run coverage effectively,
2: right? Yeah, um, you can't touch the receiver beyond five yards from the line of scrimmage after the ball was thrown. Any, any if you touch a receiver beyond that point, it's pass interference. Now, how much they've called that has always depended over the years, but that was when they first wrote that rule down because the Steelers were just mugging opponents downfield, and, and they weren't the only ones, but they were known for that. All right, um, just ask John Madden. Um, now. Not as obvious, but another thing that I was surprised at when I when I was looking back at the history of it was, pass blockers, okay, were permitted to actually extend their arms and open their hands to block. Which I, I had no idea that they weren't allowed to do that. But it, if you, it, but in the past you could only block like this. Right? You had to have your forearms out, and so guys pass block like this. Now you can get your hands out on a defender. That impeded pass rushes. That gives the quarterback more time to throw. And then another one that I think kind of got overlooked was the, uh, was an extra set of eyes on the officiating crew. They instituted the side judge. So now you have another pair of eyes looking at downfield contact. What happens the very next year? Steelers 35, Cowboys 31 in the Super Bowl, one of the, the highest-scoring highest Super Bowls to date. At the time, it was the highest-scoring. It was for a long time. Um, and you see in the graph that I put together an immediate spike over a period of about four or five years to about 1981, which was the first season where we had teams averaging, per game, 200 passing yards or more. Uh, and from there, there's a clear gap now it's narrowed a few times or actually actually about twice it's really narrowed but since then there's been a there's been a real extension out where there's a gap almost two to one between passing yards a game so and rushing yards 90 yards per point. game
3: slow increase a slow and gradual increase in, in passing yards per game mm-hmm. and slow and gradual decrease in, in rushing yards per game Although a lot of that happened by about 1990. And it's been pretty low right. offense. I want to go back to the two rule changes, because one thing you talk about, offensive line length is one thing that's just critical, what offensive tackle now. You, see, you couldn't use it before 1970. You know, right. And, and yeah. players did... Uh, but they were called for holding a fair amount for it. And, and there were, the holding calls were very prevalent in the game. The other thing that has been done since is allowing offensive linemen to hold the jersey inside the frame. And, and mm-hmm. that's been something that, that I'm not sure exactly when that rule change was made, but, but it was one of the ones uh, you know, that no doubt helped extend the passing lead over running during this period.
2: Yeah, And it's it, allowing offensive linemen to block actually opened up a lot of opportunities for your, for, like you said, it actually changed how the draft works when you think about it. I mean, we be back in the day, obviously arm length didn't matter. <laughs> you know, now, it, now it's one of the measurables that we look at at the combine. Um, you know, it, it's funny. I, but the, I remember looking at the America's game, uh, episode for the, um, from NFL films They talked about the Steelers and, and Mel Blunt complained that, you know, that when they changed the rules and they instituted the illegal contact, rule, he's like, well, that was just to keep the Steelers down, you know? And I'm like, well, no, it's actually to keep you guys from mugging receivers downfield. But it was but it was a lot of things. And it, but in order there was a even through the decade of the 80s and into the 90s, you sort of started to see defenses catch up. Like in 89, there was a peak of 210 point nine yards per game in the passing game and then you see a little dip and the 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 biggest dip was around ninety one ninety two. So that's when we had some really legendary defense in NFL history. Yeah, great Eagles team in 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 ninety one that didn't make the playoffs with a ten and six record. Could you imagine? Randall Cunningham got blew out his knee in the first game of the year in Green Bay. Um, and people forget also that if it wasn't for them, we would be talking about the New Orleans Saints that year and how good a defense they were with that incredible linebacking core. You know with You know, Sam Mills and uh, Ricky Jackson and, of course, the great Pat Swilling and uh, and and not to mention a number of I mean, Washington's defense obviously was very good that year. Buffalo had a very good defense. Those two teams met in the Super Bowl and we started to see a little bit of erosion in the television readings too, because games were being decided. It was a lot of field goals. I remember at the time I was like, Oh my gosh, field goals, field goals, field goals. We got to stop doing field goals. There were actually proposals in the rules committee in the off season around 90, around 93 that we need to get rid of field goals. And (laughs) yeah, yeah. all, All kinds of loony things that, that sometimes you hear leak out of there, like, you know, arena football league, you know, uprights, like you were saying, all that kind of stuff. So, but then, Again, the rules committee said, okay, let's not go Let's not go crazy here so in 93, uh, for the 93 season, they, in, 90, in 1992, by the way, it was 187 yards per game. So it 210 in 89 to 187 five years later. So that's a really, that's a big drop in a short amount of time. Defenses were figuring things out. We were getting better athletes on defense. Uh, illegal contact wasn't being called as much. So in 93, the first thing that happens is they shrink the play clock from 45 to 40 seconds. 94 was the big, I think the big revolution. All right They uh, first of all, two point conversion. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to open up scoring a little bit. The AFL finally wins. Um, they, moved the, they moved the kickoff back to the 30 yard line. So, more returns. That's, that was the idea behind it. But then, two other things. Neutral zone infraction actually became a thing. Used to be if the, if the defense could dance all over the field and you had to sit there as an offensive lineman, you couldn't move. Well, now, if they jumped into the neutral zone and then you moved into reaction to that, you know, like a normal human would, uh, then the defense gets called for the penalty. And also, the defense taking over at the spot of a missed kick actually prevented uh actually resulted in an in a drop in the number of field goals attempted so what happens more teams decide to go for it you get more offensive yards out yeah, of that
3: will change right? back to the 70s i'm pretty sure it might be 78 might even be 73 in terms of returning to the spot of the kick that's, that's a it,
2: it, it They they changed it and then they changed it back and then in '94 they made it permanent because it was. I remember Bill Parcells was talking about this when he was at the Patriots because he was he was having trouble figuring out what kicker he he wanted and eventually he you know dragged Matt Barr off the scrap heap once again Um, because he but he didn't but he had Drew Bledsoe at the time and he didn't want to he he was concerned about you know oh my gosh I got to send the kicker out there no I'm not going to do it I'm going to go for it a and that's when Bill Parcells really kind of became you know I mean he was with the Obviously but became much more of a gambler After that After that rule change was Reinstated And the uh, and then 95 actually people forget about This one was when they installed the radios inside The helmets for the quarterbacks um, it was, This was experimented With in the World League of American Football if people remember which later Became NFL Europe um, That initially I remember you, and you can go on YouTube and watch Some of those old games and USA Network used to televise them And they would tap into the feeds. And you could hear the coach calling plays to the quarterback. And then, yeah. And then, and then the quarterback, you could hear, there's a really good, I, I actually had one on, uh, on VHS tape. It was the second world bowl. Cause the, there were two years of the world league. Then it went away for two years. Then it was came back as NFL Europe. The first two years they had American teams mixed in with some European teams. And then the second incarnation of it was only European teams. Um, but, uh, there was a team here in Orlando. I'm based in Orlando, um, and Scott Mitchell, who you remember, what? was the quarterback. Yeah. Yep. And you could hear his offensive coordinator and head coach was Galen Hall, who is the, uh, who, uh, worked at Penn state and then also worked at Florida, I believe. And, uh, and was the head coach and you could hear him talking to their system with the thunder. The Orlando thunder was Galen Hall would call a number. And then Mitchell would look down at the, at his wristband. He was the, they were among the first guys to have the wristband, the play calls on the wristband and it was, and you'd hear, Gallen Hall say, okay, 34, and then Mitchell would call uh, 34, 34, and they would run a, and they would run out of the no huddle. Willie Davis was a receiver on that team who played for a while with the Kansas City Chiefs, um, and uh, and they had a couple of guys who were also got c- cups of coffee in the NFL like Roger Vick and Daryl Clack, and uh, they made it all the way to the World Bowl with that um, with that system, and and I've got that on YouTube as well. It's pretty interesting to see how they ran that no huddle offense. They
3: ran it strictly by a single number. Of- call as opposed to wisely, right. you know, all that. Interesting. Yeah, and, and yeah, and what year would have that been that Scott Mitchell is trying to make a comeback in the, in the World League of American Football?
2: This was this was uh, well, this was this was prior to him hitting it big with Detroit. So this was night, the spring of
3: '92. Okay. So he had his cup of coffee with the Ravens in '99, went 0-2, mm-hmm. and then handed the handed the reins over to Stony Case and then Tony Banks.
2: So- yes, the the illustrious Stony Case and Tony, and Tony Banks. But but that was by that time like Mitchell's best days were behind him. He, but he, he had one year in Detroit where he had thrown for 4,000 yards and Herman Moore had a big year. But prior to that, he was with the dolphins and he took over for Dan Marino when Dan blew out his Achilles in Cleveland uh, in 93. So, uh, you know, by that time Mitchell had had plenty of experience running an offense. Um, and, uh, and Miami almost made the playoffs that year. Were it not for a c- catastrophic last five game run, they were nine and two and then they went and then they, they lost their last five games with Steve DeBerg at quarterback because Mitchell got hurt. Yeah. That was remember the Leon let game on Thanksgiving day in the snow.
3: I cannot say that I recall that. I remember Leon Lett, of course, in the Super Bowl, but not right then. Uh,
2: Okay, so they were playing the uh, the Dolphins were playing the Cowboys in Dallas on Thanksgiving Day. It was snowing in Texas Stadium, and that was the game where uh, Dallas had blocked Pete Stoyanovich's attempt in the final minutes, and uh, to, to
1: try and win the game. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Everyday grab-and-go. Everyday giftable. Everyday fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. And they're satisfying to scratch, no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a Scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21.
2: And then Leon Lett, inexplicably in celebration, slides into the football in the snow. Jeff Dellenbach falls on it at the one-yard line. And, of course, when that happens, it's a free ball. Mm -hmm. So Jeff Dellenbach of the Dolphins fell on it at the one-yard line with two seconds to go. And Stojanovic kicked a 19-yarder to win it. So that was Leon's second Spectacular
3: blunder <laughs> so on national television. Block field goal went beyond the line of scrimmage, right. touched by a defensive player, touched by the blocking team a second yep. time, made it a free ball, was recovered.
2: Exactly. And that. So that was the Dolphins' last win. That season, they were 9-2 and two and leading the AFC East, and they lost five in a row after that and, lost, and missed out in the playoffs. But anyway, I know that's really far afield.
3: A L- little bit of Ravens history. I want to tie to that real quick. Okay. The, the 2000 Ravens playoff game at Tennessee, they won effectively on a blocked field goal return for a touchdown by Anthony Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And you'll see, if you look at that play again, everybody on the team basically that's going back to him is going, you know, the safe sign for an umpire. Basically yeah. leave that football alone, Mitchell catches it out of the air. Mitchell, they actually had another blocked field goal earlier in that game that Mitchell went chasing into the end zone. But he asked Rod Woodson on the sideline, can't I return those? He mm-hmm. said, you can, but then you risk a fumble or whatever then second time around, sure enough. Yeah. Gone that, distance.
2: That's why you hear uh, whenever there's a field goal if it, now we hear, we have microphones all over the field and you, every once in a while on a blocked kick if you if you're lucky enough to see it you'll hear guys yell poison 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 which means yes get away from the ball it's poison don't touch it because of leon let everyone was reminded of that on thanksgiving day in 1993 but um but yeah going back to where we were before when you see that those kinds of rule changes and those kinds of and, and and it were really big changes that gave a better hand to the offense, right? Instead of miscommunication with plays like the helmet, uh, the, uh, with the radio in the helmet. Now we can hear directly from the offensive coordinator or the head coach, not just what, what play to call, but also, Hey, they're, they're playing too deep now, or they're playing one deep, uh, or they're playing just straight man to man. You might have an opportunity for something. You can audible to this. So you can, you got, you're not just calling plays. You're also coaching a little bit. And and I think that that contributed really, really big in the in the early to mid nineties toward a sustained increase in passing yardage and pass production compared to the run
3: it'd be easy to see how that would benefit the offense more. And would go back to the old Cowboy teams who were advanced in terms of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But at one point, they were alternating White and Staubach on a play by play basis to bring in the next play. Right. And before that, they done it with their tight ends, included Mike Ditka as one of two guys who would bring in the play. But, uh, but teams were bringing in guys from the sidelines. Those plays were being called. A lot of teams had their quarterback just call the game at the line of scrimmage because right. of that became too cumbersome. But, uh, but you can easily see how, how just just making pertinent comments about the defense would really help the quarterback and a lot of times diagnose what's going on.
2: Yeah, it was. You know, we don't see, and I think a lot of players uh, like in 91, 92, John Elway was calling his own plays. Dan Reeves allowed him to do that. And Denver had a pretty good year that year. They lost to Buffalo in the AFC championship game in 91. Um, But but that was the first year that Elway, for example, was allowed to call his own plays. And we, I remember growing up now, I I grew up in South Florida. I was a Dolphins fan. Uh, I'm I'm a big New York Giants fan, as you can see, but I was also, you know, just, just by, you know, osmosis kind of became a Dolphins fan as well. And, you know, watching Dan Marino, we would always complain, why don't they let Marino call his own plays? Like he knows he can see what's going on better than anybody. If it was good enough for, you know, Johnny Unitas and good enough for John Elway, why wouldn't it be good for Dan Marino? And that was one of the things that used to drive us crazy about that because we would see him on TV, like you know, Gary Stevens was the offensive coordinator at the time, and he would call a play and it wouldn't work, and you'd see Marino on NBC like screaming at the sideline, you know, because he was a, he was a <laughs> he was a hothead anyway, right? And it's a good look, yeah. But but you could see him screaming. You could you could pretty easily read his lips through his face mask, and it was it was not family language, shall we say.
3: Uh, interesting stuff. So uh, uh, a lot of inflection points in the history of the game. Any others that we didn't hit on maybe that you want to talk about? Well, you
2: know, we're in, we're, we hit a, an all-time high in average passing yards, believe it or not, in 2015, uh, oh. 243.8 yards per game per team. There was a little bit of a dip in 2017, and that was just, that was kind of the season where everyone was like, oh, man, this is kind of a... Lousy season. We had a lot of injuries to quarterbacks, but now it's back up. It's not quite as high, but it's in it's close to the two forty range this past year, and it's kind, it's pretty much steadied out. But you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, they don't run the ball anymore." Actually, rushing has stayed pretty consistently over about a hundred to a hundred and fifteen yards per game for the last thirty years or so, mm-hmm. uh, with relatively with a few little hops and skips, but but not much less variation. Yeah, than right much less variation in the passing. And I think what's what has happened is the NFL has figured out its formula for what makes for an exciting game, for what makes for a good watch. And what they've done instead is we hear it all the time. And I'm sure you hear it all the time. Ken is, a point of emphasis this year will be calling a legal contact downfield, or a point of emphasis will be roughing, roughing the passer. You know, it, every year, we always hear about that. Well, the reason why they're trying to do that, and, we, and those points of emphasis usually last through the month of September, and then they back off. But what happens is the players adjust to it. And I think what the NFL has detected is, okay, we're seeing a little bit less production. Let's tell our officials, hey, Let's work a little bit more on illegal contact and pass interference. Um, Now, this past year, they've been saying, you know, they've been, people have been complaining, a defensive player has been complaining. Oh, we're, you know, it's too much in favor of the offense. We need to get a little bit back here. So we're seeing a little, we saw a little bit the last couple of years on a, a reemphasis of deep of offensive pass interference, particularly with push-offs and things like that. Um, they still don't call pick plays though, <laughs> which, yeah. no, they they, which they never will.
1: Right.
3: Once, once per season or so. I mean, I, I, all the receivers know, yeah. you know, you just get in the way and then get out of the way is, is the key. Make make that right. defender, fear that contact, play chicken with him, then get out of the way. And it's only, it's very, right. very rarely called once a season. Right.
2: Plus, it. the other thing I think that people, you know, and fans in particular lose sight of, and I think we lose sight of too, is the fact that officials are making these calls in real time with their own two eyes. And it's hard to make these calls. Like, we, you know, we see games, uh, we see games all the time, you know, on TV that, you know, they replay a call or a non call from 15 15- different angles in ultra, you know, 4k ultra high definition, you know, in super slow motion, you know, hundred frames a second. Right. And of course we're sitting here at home on our couch saying, you know, hey, how come he didn't see that? And I'm like, well, you try making that call in real time with your own two eyes because the officials don't get the benefit of actually replaying every play. Now, there have been some discussions about whether or not we're going to have a – one day we're going to have a booth official that can call down um, on certain plays. Um, they haven't – as far as I know, they haven't actually instituted that just yet. They've experimented with it in the in the Alliance of American Football. Is that right, though, Ken?
3: Yeah, I, I like the way – I'm not actually sure about the AAF, but I like the way they have it in hockey and baseball where it's not anybody who's in the stadium. So it's just kind of like nobody to boo at because the decision's being made in New mm-hmm. York. The decision's being made in L.A., whatever it might be. But I, I kind of like that system, and, and I don't think that would be a bad thing at all to have an, you know, a, uh, an NFL oversight committee that's, that's seeing from a, from a third site. I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. that would be a problem.
2: I think the one issue that you might have it, and this is from this is where the tech nerd comes in. Okay, from in my perspective, is the one issue you might have with that is latency, like getting, getting the live video signal back to New York. Or wherever, right? And then them buzzing and if it ha- them being able to buzz an official somehow from New York all the way back in you know, Los Angeles or Seattle or wherever. You know those signals have to travel a long way pretty quickly. And when you're talking about you know 25 to 40
3: seconds, you know that's yeah. not a lot of time. It takes about two. The, there's only two second latency on the on the um, uh, Directv feed relative to other feeds. So I I, I don't mm-hmm. I, I'm not I'm not con- convinced that would be an issue. But in any case, the format of football is better than, say, the format of basketball in terms of turning around a call. And, you know, they do it in basketball. too. Right. So I, I got to feel it would be it would be possible. I mean, it would, it, sensors in the football is something that makes a lot of sense, too, for crossing the goal line. And that that is not yeah. happened yet. Uh, they've got a lot of things they probably could solve right now with today's technology that they just have decided, you know, we really don't want to do that just yet.
2: Yeah, the sensors in the football thing I was always interested in, but it, like that's that's actually harder to pull off technically than I think most people think because any part of the football can reach a given right. space on the field. So it's not like you just have you know a little GPS sensor in one side of the ball and a little GPS sensor in the other. No, you got to have that. Something has to reflect off of something all the way around. And then what happens on these really you know like fourth and one plays where the ball is hidden in a pile of twenty two bodies? You know, I mean, what, what are you gonna you know, where, where can the sensor sense where the ball is through 22 humans with all of their metal and plastic padding? I don't know. That's, that's a tough technical, technical thing to kind of figure out if they can figure it out. Great. All for it. You know, that's, I think that would be pretty cool to do, but I think that's a bigger technical challenge than, than I think even we might even
3: right. so realize. Th- I think you to tell when it, when the knee is down is the harder component of that the, actual the ball, you can project the size of the ball. If you, have both tips, so you can project mm-hmm. the, where the uh, other edge of the football is, and you know the NFL data that they that they distribute for the Big Data Bowl has accuracy to in theory to within 0.01 yards every one tenth of a second. And I, one of my components of that is one tenth of a second is is really that's a long time, and and mm-hmm. having that is not necessarily enough. But maybe they have more, and they just give out that is one of the things so
2: yeah i mean that's you know and sometimes you know we've seen it where it that 0.01 yards you know if you thinking, I, i've got to do some quick math on here like like 0.01 yards e- yeah. yeah a third of an inch that's still you know that third of an inch yeah. can matter you know, when, when you really think, when you really think about the difference between, especially if a team season on the line, if it's, you know, thir- you know, fourth and one. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, you know, that's, that's a tough, I, I think that they may not even be comfortable with oh, that much. Yeah.
3: So it's a, that's, that's why yeah. coordinate given for one player wearing one sensor in his helmet. So it's it's really, right. I mean, you know, how do you know where his arms and legs are? I mean, you just it doesn't give you the whole story. So uh, I I yeah. it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tough call, tough thing to get done. Yeah.
2: We're get we're getting there. It's just it, it's kind of hard. It's kind of like, you know, I I asked my father-in-law one time like, you know, when do you think we're going to have GPS active golf balls? He's a big golfer. You know, and and his thought was, well, why would they do it? You know, when they can, you know, why would Titleist, for example, agree to that when they can just sell a bunch of golf balls? I'm like, someone has to have figured out how to, how to have a, you know, a, a golf ball that has a GPS sensor in it, right? You know, why haven't we figured? It? Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's the flight of the ball. I'm not, you know, and the compression of the ball. You know, can it actually withstand being hit x number of times? I don't know. It's one of those things where you think, oh, should they have figured that out by now? And and it's like, no, they haven't yet. Why not? Well, because it's Tougher than it looks.
3: They already have GPS in casino chips of certain denominations. So if you if you if you ever get the the big money chips, those have a GPS and they know where they are. And oh,
2: so. I'll remember that. I'll remember that for next time.
3: All right. Anyway, fantastic <laughs> conversation here, Jeff. I really appreciate you coming on. I did want to kind of tie this back to some Baltimore things. Maybe maybe we talk about one really quickly. There's always a debate about the 2000 Ravens defense versus the 76. Steelers defense in terms mm-hmm. of which team kind of had it easier and there's a lot of there's a lot of factors The 76 Steelers team certainly had a great run in terms of those nine straight games allowing 28 points the 2000 Ravens defense doing it in a league where offense was at a higher level I think don't think there's any doubt about that and, and the defense had it a little bit tougher on them any thoughts on that?
2: you know as uh, as good, as good as mel blunt and his and his cohorts were in 76 i have to give the edge to the 2000 ravens for that very reason that you spoke of which is they were playing a much more they were playing much more offensively savvy competition you're playing much more complicated offenses the west coast offense was a thing throughout the league they were playing run and shoot offenses and also let's face it the caliber of athletes that we had in 2000 000, we're just that much better than 25 years before. Just like the caliber of athletes, I think that we have now in the NFL, we're that much better than we're that much better than 21 years ago. Um, training has gotten much, uh, you know, much better. Um, the accuracy of, uh, of of how we of how teams practice, like teams videotape every play of every practice in order to get in order to figure out where they have an edge, and. When you think about, you know, every little move is dissected by, you know, analysts of offense, defense, coaching staff, and all that, you know, there's a, there's a lot less that's left to chance these days. And so I, I have to give the edge to the 2000 Ravens, um, RIP, they absolutely destroyed my giants in the Super Bowl, and I haven't forgiven the Ravens for that yet. Um, but, uh, but yeah, look, look, we were, we were simply the, we were simply one of the speed bumps underneath that steamer. <laughs> Roller and um, and that was and, and you know and you got to give credit to that team and uh, and to you know Marvin Lewis and and Brian Billick and uh, and and everyone on that staff for put for assembling a team first of all assembling a group of personnel that was just out of this world uh, and then in addition to that giving them you know letting them have free reign and and be as great as they could be they were so well coached and they were so athletic they're the better defense yeah.
3: well I appreciate that, and uh, and we love to having you on here, Jeff. Uh, tell folks where they can find your work.
2: Sure. Well, you can you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff underscore Sharon, and I'm also the managing editor of as as you hear my dog in the background, the uh, trying to get out of my office. I'm also the managing editor of a site called Black and Gold Banneret. I actually uh, cover UCF Knights sports here in Orlando, the University of Central Florida, uh, and uh, we've had a couple of players come through the Baltimore Ravens organization uh, and around. The the rest of the NFL as well. So if you follow us there at UCF underscore Bannerets, that's B-A-N-N-E-R-E-T. Uh, you can follow us there for the latest. If you uh, if there are any night fans in the uh, in the Baltimore DMV area, you know, that's where you can find the latest on UCF stuff. We have a podcast and everything. And also you can uh, follow me, of course, like I said, individually at Jeff underscore Sharon.
3: I'll make sure I get the article out there. It's really a must read, even though it was written seven years ago about the kind of the, the evolution of the NFL in a lot of ways in the offensive and defense balance actually it's not really about the offensive and defensive balance as much as the run pass balance you yeah. are a fan of the pass happy NFL oh
2: yes throw more throw, throw more. the teams don't throw enough we need more passing in the NFL because it's just so hard to defend and it's a fun game okay. it's fun to watch the, the NFL don't ever let anyone tell you that the product that is the NFL right now is less fun today than it was before it is as fun to watch now as a spectator as it ever has
3: been. Okay. I would agree with that. And I also say that the, watching the Ravens run the football relentlessly on their opponents is something I have tremendously enjoyed, as much as I've enjoyed all the passing I've seen in, in past years as well. So we've got a very entertaining game, and I think I think the, the game is most entertaining when it's at a, when it's a conflict of style, when you can win with multiple styles, win with multiple offense and defensive styles, and there's argument about that, that that's that's going on every day and how the how the games evolve. Offensively and defensively.
2: Yeah, that, that's what you know. That, that was the old quote from uh, Bert, from the late Burt Sugar. Styles make fights. Yeah, okay. That's always, that's always, that's always the case. Styles make fights in football too. And you know, we've seen that before. I think back to the first football game, the NFL game that I ever watched the whole way through as a kid was Super Bowl twenty-five, mm-hmm. the Giants and the Bills, Parcells against Levy and the no huddle and, and Jim Kelly and all them, and probably to that point the greatest Super Bowl of all time. Wide right. Because, right, wide right, Scott Norwood, because we had two very different contrasting styles meeting on the on the biggest stage and that resulted in one of the in a legendary game and that's what got me hooked on the NFL and and I think a lot of other people a lot of other fans if you go back in time you think about what was the game that really got me hooked it was probably a game similar to what you're talking about Ken which is between two teams with contrasting styles that created drama and that's what we enjoy to see that's what we enjoy watching it's the ultimate reality television you I have no idea what's going to happen.
3: Great stuff, Jeff. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, make sure you visit this article that's posted with this. I know a lot of people get this from their phone. Go to the website for this one. Take a look and and uh, and see if you can get the link and look at the article. Really worth a listen. Jeff, thanks again for coming on. Ken, thank you so much for having me. Go orange. Yeah, well, let's talk to you next time <laughs> on Film Study.